Well, my assignment uh, this afternoon and tomorrow morning is to speak for a few minutes on the doctrine of God and on the importance of the doctrine of God for pastoral ministry. Uh, I have four children, two daughters, two sons. My oldest daughter just texted me about two seconds ago, telling me about something at school, and you all know what that is like. Uh, but my son is a 13-year-old. He's in seventh grade. He attends a Christian school. Uh, he's taking an Old Testament class right now with a very fine teacher who's actually a teaching elder in the PCA. And he's told me a story the other day about something that happened in class. The teacher was trying to uh, introduce a section in... David's life related to David's desire to build the temple. And the teacher asked the class, have any of you ever had a dream that died? And the first student raised her hand and she said, well, one time I had a dream that my siblings and I were running through the woods and we were being chased by a bad guy and he killed us. And the teacher said, okay, uh, that's not exactly what what I'm asking for. you know, if you had a dream, something you hoped for, and it died, another student raised his hand and said, well, I used to dream of meeting, and he named a race car driver. So we're thinking, okay, good. We're, now we're, we're understanding what's going on here. But the race car driver died, and I never got to meet him. Well, of course, it's a silly illustration, but uh, it helps us appreciate how easy it is to uh, misunderstand even the simplest statements. Well, how much more so when it comes to the doctrine of God, when it comes to the doctrine of the God who stoops down to us and speaks to us in our own language, how easy is it to misunderstand what he says about himself to us? And of course, we have witnessed a number of misunderstandings in the last uh, few years related to the doctrine of God. And the thing that I think troubles me the most about a lot of the debate that has characterized uh, the last few years is not that we find those on the side of kind of progressive evangelicalism who are trying to revise Christianity. It's that we find uh, a number of folks who we would consider our friends, those who would consider conservative folks who are trying to defend the faith uh, once for all delivered to the saints. And we find uh, on this side uh, what are at times uh, an uncertain sound related to the doctrine of God. Think of 2016, uh, the big debate surrounding the Trinity when it became clear to a number of folks that uh, some have jettisoned uh, some very important aspects of classical Trinitarian theology. Think of the rejection of the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, uh, which was, for the history of the church since the fourth century, the fundamental and defining way of distinguishing the first and second person of the Trinity. We found it replaced with a doctrine that is variously described as the eternal functional subordination of the Son, or the eternal subordination of the Son, or eternal... Uh, relationships, subordination, and so forth and so forth. There are so many acronyms, I can't keep up with them all. And the problem is that despite the intention to affirm the consubstantiality of the Son with the Father, we have unwittingly with this new understanding of the person of the Son, I think threatened his full dignity, his full 
worthiness as God and as the Son of God. Think more recently about debates uh, related to the doctrine of divine simplicity. And I was delighted to see that uh, James Dolezal's book has been given to you as a gift because it is a gift. Uh, Talking with some friends at lunch about just what a unique contribution this book has made on the scene in the last few years. And so uh, I, I commend that to you. But even if you look beyond the doctrine of eternal generation, even if you look beyond the doctrine of simplicity, if you pay close attention really to the last couple of decades in evangelical theology, you find among those who we would think of as kind of the stalwarts of conservative, reformed, and evangelical theology, a number of rather significant revisions in the doctrine of God. You have revisions related to the doctrine of divine immutability, revisions related to the doctrine of divine impassibility, Revisions related to the nature of God's love as well. Well, the question is, what's going on here? Right? Uh, If we're not talking about people who are intentionally uh, putting themselves forth as revisionists, theologians, if if we're talking about people who who consider themselves committed to biblical inerrancy, right, committed in one way or another to, to historic Protestantism, what is happening? And... Uh, the best illustration I can think of comes from that great uh, piece of cultural excellence, uh, The Little Mermaid. You remember at, at the beginning of the movie where Ariel is down in her grotto and, and she's going through all the various things she's found on the ocean floor that have, that have fallen off of ships that have crashed and so forth, and, and she's pulling out a fork and she's singing her little song about all the wonders and riches of her collection. But what does she do with a fork? She's brushing her hair with it, right? And she's, she's taken all these very, these very different things that we're all very familiar with. We, all, we know what they're for, but she doesn't know what they're for, right? And so she has to put them to some kind of new use. Well, I, I think in a sense this is what has happened for a lot of conservative, reformed, and evangelical theologians, okay? We, we have these various doctrines sitting around. They're in our confessions, Right? They're, they're actually not only in our confessions, they're in some of classical works of pastoral care and piety as well. They're in our catechisms, right? But, but we've, we've forgotten what they're for. We don't know what to do with them. And, and so, um, oftentimes in the name of biblical fidelity and in, in the name of, of, of faithful gospel ministry, we start tinkering around with them and putting them to new uses. Well, what I want to suggest to you is that this is a very serious situation, and I think it is a, a very serious doctrinal crisis uh, in the state of evangelicalism today. You see, the doctrine of God is, is not only kind of the first doctrine in the system of theology, but there's a sense in which the doctrine of God is the central doctrine in the system of theology. Every doctrine is in one way or another a function of the doctrine of God. Right? The doctrine of God is not just that God is one God and three equal equally glorious persons, right? But the doctrine of God is that God is the creator, God is the preserver, God is the redeemer, and God is the consummator. And what that means is that any time we start tinkering with the doctrine of God, we inevitably start tinkering with the entire system of theology. Well, I want to spend some time this afternoon and then again tomorrow morning talking about what it might mean to retrieve a classical Christian doctrine of God, the doctrine received and confessed by the patristic, medieval, and, yes, Reformation churches 
but the doctrine that has been in many ways lost um, in recent decades and indeed uh, longer than that. Um, here's the plan. I really, I really think that if we were to appreciate the, not only kind of the nature of, of the error that is lying beneath many of the, the kind of things that are happening today, but also if we were to appreciate what it will take to recover a classical understanding of God, we really need to become fluent once again with the, with the fundamental grammar, if you will, of classical Christian theism. And I want to look at a specific aspect of that grammar today and tomorrow, specifically what it means that uh, God speaks to us via analogy. What does it mean that when God reveals himself to us, he reveals that, yes, there are certain ways in which we are similar to God, and that is the basis for his ability to communicate to us, but there are also profound ways in which uh, we are very dissimilar to God. And to look at uh, this idea, this idea of analogical predication, analogical divine naming, we need to look first at really the nature of reality and then at the nature of language. And in our time this afternoon, I want to first talk about the kind of metaphysical foundations of analogy and then tomorrow talk more directly about the linguistic dimensions of analogy. So... Uh, the metaphysical basis of analogical predication. The question before us is, why is it that a transcendent God is able to speak truly of himself in our language? Why is it that a transcendent God is able to speak speak truly of himself in our language? And the answer, if I can use uh, the words of Herman Bavink, is that creation is theomorphic. Creation was made to resemble God. This is the metaphysical answer to the question. Why is it that God can speak truly of himself in our language? The answer is creation is theomorphic. Creation is made to resemble God. Basil of Caesarea, one of the three great Cappadocians. I like to say Basil is the best Cappadocian, though it's a debatable point. Listen to what he says uh, on this topic. He says, the world was not conceived by chance and without reason, but for a useful end and for the great advantage of all beings, since it is really the school where reasonable souls exercise themselves, the training ground where they learn to know God, since by the sight of visible and sensible things, the mind is led as by the hand to the contemplation of invisible things. Things. What I want to spend the rest of our time this afternoon doing is, is really getting at what Basil is talking about. What does it mean to say that the world that God created is a school for learning to know God? That when we perceive the world, we are led, as it were, by the hand from visible things to the glory of our invisible and immortal God. Well, the first question in addressing uh, Basil's statement is, why does he say this? And the answer, of course, is Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, uh, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Uh, 
I'm at the age where I need glasses, but I have not yet reached the age where I'm wise enough to get them. (laughs) For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Why does Basil say that creation is a school that leads us by the hand from the visible things to the invisible God? Well, the reason he says it is because Paul says it. Right? This world was made to resemble God. Well, the question is, how is it that we were made to perceive the world and in perceiving the world somehow to perceive God? And that, I suggest, is is the kind of $20 question we want to look at today. The answer comes, uh, really, I think, in a a verse uh, that is alluded to in the next verse, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, in, in speaking of the futility of the fallen human mind and of its inability to perceive the world and the visible things of God, and in perceiving the visible things of God to perceive the invisible attributes of God, uh, Paul is alluding to, I think, Psalm 94. And I think Psalm 94 really is the answer to the how question. How is it that the world is supposed to lead us to its maker? How is the visible world supposed to lead us to the invisible God? So look at Psalm 94. Psalm 94 begins with a a, a cry to the Lord for vengeance, asking for the Lord's deliverance, that he would shine forth, that he would judge for the psalmist's cause. He then turns to address the wicked, the the dullest of the people, in verse 8 and 9 and following. And I want you to listen to the question that the psalmist asks of the pagan of the enemy of God's people who who would devour God's people like bread. He says, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? And by the way, this is the language of Romans 121, folly, wisdom, vanity. When will you be wise? Verse 9, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, Does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. In other words, they are futile. You see, what the psalmist says, and what what Paul understands in Romans 1, is that the way that human beings perceiving the world are supposed to be able to, through the world, perceive God, is through something we might call the principle of proportionate causality. The principle of proportionate causality. Uh, the idea is this. Any, for any effect to occur, 
for any cause to produce an effect. The perfection that is produced in the effect must somehow be in the cause that produces it. And this is, of course, the, the source of the line of questionings here in Psalm 94, right? Okay, you have the, the power of hearing, the psalmist says, right? You have the power of thinking. Where did that come from? And his assumption is that perfection must lie in the one who gave it to you. Now, the idea here is not that uh, all things in creation are, exist in God in the same way. Okay? Some perfections exist in God in a formal way. So, in this case, wisdom exists in human beings because wisdom exists in God. Okay? But other things in creation, other perfections in creation, pre-exist in God in different ways. Trees do not exist in God because God has an attribute of being leafy or something like that. Okay? Trees exist in, in God's ideas. Right? Let the earth bring forth vegetation. Okay? Even sinful acts. Right? Ultimately, God is responsible for these, but not because somehow there's a preeminent paradigmatic instance of sin in God. May it never be. Right? Or even that uh, sin reflects a, a, a good and wise perception, as, as the trees do, or something like this. But God is ultimately even responsible that he wills to permit not the, the form of sin, but the deformation of the good things that he has made. And so ultimately, even evil things are somehow traceable to God. Not as the author of sin, right? But as our confession speaks, as the one who willingly permits them to occur. And so this is the, the principle of proportionate causality. Okay? And this is what the psalmist suggests that the fool does not see, but Paul suggests he should see. Okay? We should see through, through the various perfections of this world that there is a maker. And that anything good in this world must exist in the one who made them. Now the question is this. If, if that holds... Okay? If that's the way that creation, right, as a school for the knowledge of God, takes us by the hand, Basil says, and leads us to God, the question is then, what kind of cause-effect relationship are we dealing with? And, and there are a couple of, of, of options that are discussed in theology when it comes to God's causal relationship to the world. I want to mention a, a, a bad example. This is not the case. And, then, and a good example. Uh, the bad example in terms of God's relationship with creation as cause to effect, is the idea of univocal causality. Here's univocal causality. I am the father of a son. That's an example of univocal causality. Okay? When I and my wife became a father of a son, two sons, two daughters, in fact, right, we had children who share the exact same nature as we do. That's what univocal causality is. Okay? We exist on the same plane of being, cause and effect. This is why there's resemblance, right? Like father, like son. The idiom presupposes this idea of univocal causality. Well, when it comes to God's relationship to creatures, we're not dealing with an instance of univocal causality. We're dealing with an example of non-univocal causality. And an example we can use is not when a man begets a child, but when a man builds a house, right? A man is the cause. The house is the effect, right? But these are not on the same plane of being. Now, here's the trick. There are things in the house that nevertheless resemble and say something about the maker, right? We all know from, from 
you know, different parts of the country, we're familiar with different builders. And right, you can sometimes pass by a neighborhood and without even seeing a sign, you know which builder built the houses. Why is that? Because they reflect something about the builder. But the house is, is, is not only reflects something about the builder, it's also very dissimilar to the builder. Right? It's a house. It's made of wood. Right? It has a roof. It has different rooms. Okay? And, and this is the, the nature of the relationship between God and his creatures. It's a relationship of non-univocal causality. Now, here's how that comes into play when we think about uh, the perfections that, rela- that pertain to a univocal cause and effect versus a non-univocal cause and effect. Think of the perfection of being warm. David, you have children, I assume? Two, two boys. Okay, so you meet David Strain, you say, I tell you what, that David Strain, he's a warm guy, right? Nice guy, we all wish we had, uh, we could speak like him, uh, we would make more money, we would have bigger churches, more successful ministries. Uh, David Strain is a warm guy. Imagine one day, you know, you, you meet David's kids, you say, man, these kids, they're, they're warm, they're, they're, they're lovely, Okay. Now, when you say David's strain is warm, and when you say child's strain is warm, what are you saying? You're saying the same thing. You're using that perfection in the same way. Now, let's imagine that David is also a master builder. Are you? No? Okay. Let's imagine that David is a master builder, and he builds a house, okay? And he has a party, and he invites you over to his house. And, uh, you know, it's July in Jackson, and, and, and July in Jackson, if you don't know, is pretty hot. And, uh, you know, you said, David, do you think I could perhaps have a, a glass of lemonade? It's a bit warm in here. Now, you say David Strain is a warm guy. You say David's son is a warm guy. We're talking about a univocal perfection because we're talking about a univocal cause, univocal effect. You say David Strain is warm and David Strain's house is warm we're not speaking of warm in the same sense. And why is that? Because we're not speaking about a univocal cause and a univocal effect. These are two different things, right? And this is a thing that we have to keep in mind when we think about the way that creatures resemble God, right? Creatures are not a univocal effect of the divine cause. The principle of proportionate causality, understood in a non-univocal sense, requires us to affirm that although the perfections of creaturely effects must exist in their divine cause, they must exist in God in a non-univocal manner, in a manner that specifically negates creaturely imperfections and acknowledges God's supreme perfection. Now, I've suggested to you that Paul in, in Romans 20, I'm sorry, in Romans 120, Romans 121, he's got Psalm 94 in the background, thinking how it is that the visible world and the perfections of this visible world somehow lead us by the hand to the invisible God. I've also suggested that we should think about it leading us to God as, in effect, leads to the cause, as the perfections, in effect, lead us to the cause. But we should understand this in a non-univocal way. God is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His wisdom is not like our wisdom. His love is not like our love. Well, when you read a little further in in Romans 1, 
you see Paul further kind of unpacking the kinds of negations and affirmations that have to be made when speaking about God as the transcendent cause of his creatures. And you see Paul pulling in another psalm to unpack the significance of what he's saying. So, uh, look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, this is a almost direct allusion to Psalm 106, verse 20. And it's fascinating about this, is Psalm 106, verse 20, is not talking about Gentiles at all, as Paul is in this context. It's talking about Israel at Sinai, right? And it's specifically talking about the sin of the golden calf, where they made the golden calf, and, and Aaron says to the children of Israel, Behold, Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay? And of course, as we know, the sin of the golden calf is not so much breaking the first commandment as it is breaking the second commandment. Right? It's not so much worshiping the wrong God. Aaron says, hey, this will be a great way to have a feast to Yahweh. Right? It's worshiping the right God in the wrong way. But specifically, it's worshiping him by making an image of him. Now, what's striking about Paul's citation of this verse is not only that he uses it with reference to Gentile idolatry rather than Jewish idolatry, but that he adds two words which in the first century were kind of uh, loaded terms in philosophical theology. They've exchanged not the glory of God, they've exchanged the glory of the what? Immortal God for the image of images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is, is one of the ways Paul fleshes out the, the difference between the transcendent cause of all things, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this creaturely effects, the way of negation, right? Creatures are mortal, but God, the true God, is immortal. And thus, to try to image God, right, by one of his mortal creaturely effects, is to, to paint a false picture, to paint a false image, it is to create an idol. Paul will come back to this idea at the very conclusion of his discussion of uh, God's electing purposes in the history of Israel, the relationship between Jew and Gentile, and ultimately in the gospel spread through his ministry. Remember at the conclusion of his discussion of these things at the end of Romans chapter 11. He steps back in a, in a statement of wonder. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How, what? Unsearchable are his judgments. How, what? Inscrutable his ways. Right? The idea here is, again, the way of negation. Yes, God is wise as the source of all wisdom. He must be wise. But his wisdom is what? It's an unfathomable wisdom. It is an unsearchable wisdom. Uh, the language of, of a bathos, of a depth that cannot be sounded, is what Paul uses to describe the infinite transcendence and glory of God. But not only is there negation, there is also affirmation. Indeed, we must say that the affirmation is presupposed as well. 
Okay? The reason there is no limit to God is because he's supremely perfect. Right? He is unsurpassably perfect. His wisdom is fullness of wisdom. His power is fullness of power. His being is fullness of being. His goodness is fullness of being. Well, let, let's, let's, let's look at these two dimensions of, 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 of the transcendent cause that God is, the way of negation and the way of his supreme perfection. First, the way of negation. Unlike the world of things that God made, God is not a lot of things. He's not contingent. Right? All creatures are contingent. All creatures depend upon God to be what they are and to be that they are. To be a creature is to be contingent through and through, right? But not so the great I am. He is who he is. God has life in himself. God is also not composite. This is uh, the book that Dolezal has written, dealing with the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, God is, is not a composite of, exe- of existence and essence, for example. Right? In the beginning, when God created the light, when God created the heavens and the earth and so forth, what do we have? Let there be light. Light, its nature is named. And then what? And there was light. Right? But light and the nature of light and the existence of light, those aren't intrinsically necessary. Right? It could be that light never existed. But not so when it comes to God. To be God is to be. He is who he is. He's the one who was and is and is to come. Blessed be his glorious name. To be God is to be not changeable. God is not capable of growth. God is not capable of decay. All creatures are capable of growth and decay. Right? And for this reason, to be God is not to be temporal. Because God does not grow or decay, his being is not measurable by time, which is what time does. It measures the change of creatures, right? Remember what Psalm 102 says, you are the same, your years have no end. And again, in contrast to what? The growth and decay of creatures. Interestingly, a verse that Hebrews chapter 1 applies to the Lord Jesus Christ, How about the way of eminence? How about the way of God's supreme perfection? Well, not only is is God not certain things, right? Really, the reason he is not certain things is because he is supremely perfect, right? His perfection admits no growth or diminution, right? It it admits no composition, okay? It admits, admits no passage of time, no beginning and end, Robert Sokolowski, a Christian philosopher, speaking of divine perfection, says this. This is a very fine way of summarizing divine perfection. He says, God plus the world is not greater than God alone. Or, God plus any creature is not greater than God alone. What's the point? God's perfection is not quantitative. Right? Such that you add the existence of creatures and now he's more perfect. Or you take away the existence of creatures and he's less perfect. 
You add the various goods of the world, and, and now God has more than he did beforehand. You take them away, and God has less. But of course, we know this is not true. Remember, remember David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. All these things that we're offering to you this day, we received them from your hand. You, you remember Job. A number of places in Job, th- this point is emphasized. Job chapter 22 Verse 2, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you're in the right? Or is it a gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Now, let me do a little mini excursus here on the doctrine of justification by grace. Okay? One reason that you can't be justified by works right, is that it's impossible, right? We're sinners, and we can't possibly do what it would be required to, to earn our justification. But Gerhardus Voss says, another reason it's impossible to be justified by works is that it's, it's irreligious. To claim to be justified works is, 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 is to claim that you could somehow benefit God by your works and, and make him your debtor. Okay? But the supremely perfect God cannot be improved, even by our best wisdom, even by our most obedient righteousness. Job 35, verse 6 and 7, you get a similar idea. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your Hand. Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. And then chapter 41, verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, why do I cite these verses from Job? Because... In Romans 11, after Paul has spoken of the unfathomable depth of God's wisdom, right, of the unsearchable depth of God's judgments, he quotes not only Isaiah chapter 40, but he quotes from the book of Job to speak of the absolute supreme perfection of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, when it comes to God's wisdom, Who contributed to the increase of his wisdom? And the answer has to be what? No one. God doesn't know things the way we know them. Everything we know, we learn from the outside. But God knows what he knows by nature. And then verse 35, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And the answer here again is no one. Why is it that a transcendent God may speak truly of himself to us in our language? The answer is that metaphysically speaking, creation is theomorphic. Creatures resemble God. And tomorrow morning we'll come back to this theme and talk about what it means for God, the transcendent God, the infinitely perfect God. What it means for him to take up the language of creatures and to reveal himself in this 
language. But before we do that, I want to conclude with just a couple of things, draw out a couple of lessons from really the looking at the metaphysical basis of analogy, that we were made to resemble God. The corollary of the affirmation that, cre- that creatures are theomorphic, that we are made to resemble God, and therefore by perceiving creatures, we, we should have been able to be led by the hand of God. Through sin, we are not able to do so, and therefore we need special revelation to, to take us by the hand again and lead us, as Psalm 94 and other passages do. The, the corollary of this affirmation is that while creatures are metaphysically theomorphic, God is not, metaphysically speaking, anthropomorphic. Metaphysically speaking, God is the primary analog in the creator-creature relationship. Creatures are the secondary analog. We were made to be like him. He is not made to be like us. In fact, he was not made. What is the significance of that? Well, what that means is there's a one-way likeness between God and creatures. Uh, Dionysius, early church father, gives an analogy to describe this. He says, you would never say that they, a picture of a man, or so you never say that a man is like the picture of himself. You would say that the picture of the man is like the man. Right? Your wife sends you a picture of the kids. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, that's just like them. Okay? But you never say, oh, the kids, they're just like that picture. Really? They're like three inches tall? Right? They're two-dimensional? Well, that's kind of offensive. No, we get the idea. When you talk about a man and and this picture, you're talking about a one-way likeness. And, of course, Scripture teaches us fundamentally in the doctrine that we were created in the image of God. Right? God made us in his image, but as someone has said, we've been returning the compliment ever since, making him in ours. But of course, Scripture forbids us to think in this way. Isaiah 40, when the Lord addresses his people going into exile, what does he say? He says, who then is like me? And to whom would you compare me? And the answer is what? No one. Okay? It follows from the uniqueness of God, that he is the only God that he is also incomparable. Okay? While we were made to look like him, he does not exist in a class with his creatures. And this is of vital importance to understanding the nature of analogical language of God because the temptation is, is to think that while God stoops down to us to speak to us in our language, the fact that he uses the language that first refers to us We must not be misled into thinking that, therefore, we are the basis and the model for what God is like. Oh, it's quite the opposite. And so there's a really fascinating and important thing we have to observe when it comes to theological language. While metaphysically speaking, we are like God, and and, and there's a one-way likeness from God to us, when it comes to theological language, we use language that we're first familiar with in the context of speaking of creatures, and then we apply it to God. And we travel in two different directions. And we'll talk about the significance of that uh, tomorrow morning. Well, I want to conclude uh, with something, uh, drawing some of the implications back to Christology 
and indeed to eschatology. Creation was made to resemble God. Why? Well, one reason, Basil says, is that it can lead us by the hand to contemplate God. The problem, of course, is that a result of sin, we have failed to do that well. And indeed, Thomas Aquinas, sorry, but Thomas Aquinas says, listen, even the brightest men, because of sin, they don't do very well at trying to follow creatures to God, but inevitably mix their knowledge of God with idols. And so that puts us in the place where we need Scripture to come along and do what Paul does in Romans 1, what the psalmist does in Psalm 94, and remind us what we should have seen if we weren't fools, blinded, made dumb by sin. To look at creation and trace from the creaturely effects to their divine transcendent cause and know something of God through creation. But I believe that God made the world to resemble himself for another reason. If the first reason refers to a a, a reason related to our knowledge of God, the second refers to a reason related to our love of God. You remember when God created all things in the beginning, he declared that all things were what? Good. And for every kind of creature there is in the universe that God has made, there is a kind of goodness that belongs to it. There's something that makes it desirable. A beautiful woman is desirable in one way. A a, a rack of ribs in quite another. Okay? But both are good because God made them good. Well, the reason God made a world to resemble himself is not only so that we might know him, but so that we might, in all the various good things that God had made, have a taste of goodness that would incite in us a desire for a greater goodness, a desire for a greater sweetness, right? A desire for greater beauty, a desire for greater satisfaction. And Maximus the Confessor, one of the early church fathers, in talking about the, the, the nature of creation in this way as not only a, a collection of various true things that in different ways are to direct us to God, but as a a cosmos of good things that were created to direct us to God, he discusses how it is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully creature, that this aspect of creation and this part of the meaning of creation comes into its fullness. And I think you see this in a number of different ways in Scripture, but, but one of them is preeminently in the Gospel of John. You remember in the Gospel of John, you've got seven absolute I am statements where Jesus takes that self-declaration of the Lord on his lips and says, I am, I am. You also, though, have in the Gospel of John seven predicate I am statements, right? Where he does not say I am in the absolute sense, but he says I am this and I am that, Right? I am what? The light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what Maximus says is that it's in the incarnation of the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the word that called all of these different creatures into being in the beginning and said, let there be light. 
right? And let there be day and let there be night and let there be shepherds and let there be lights and let there be bread. All of these good things that were to bring some kind of finite delight and satisfaction to us. It is in this word who created all these things in becoming flesh that he reveals himself to be the secret of creation. Right? All of the things that God has made, like the jewels that Abraham's servant right, takes out of his satchel as he tries to woo a wife for Isaac. Right? And God made the world to draw his children into communion with himself through Jesus Christ, who is fully God, who is fully man. That we might know in Christ not only the one who is the truth, but that we might know in Jesus Christ the one who is the bread that satisfies into eternal life, right? The one whose, whose blood is true drink, whose blood which to drink is to never thirst again. And this is the purpose that God made a world to resemble him. Well, we'll come back to this tomorrow and we'll talk uh, about the linguistic nature of analogical predication. But, but, but getting the metaphysical basis in place, I think, is very important because a lot of the, the things I want to say tomorrow presuppose that the world is the kind of world that God made it to be and that God is the kind of God he is as the maker of all things. All right. Thank you.